There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. I really don't know how this plays out. We also don't know a ton about this, you know, virus. So there's so many open questions. I just have a really hard time making predictions because I don't know how the outbreak's going to change. Hi, I'm Benjamin Thompson. Welcome to episode three of Coronapod. I'm still here in my South London basement, and I'm joined on the line by Noah Baker and Amy Maxman. Noah, how are you doing, first of all? Not bad. I like the the beginning of Coronapod. We hear about your basement. It's nice to know what's going on in the basement in South London. <laughs> and Amy, how about you? You're in California, right? Hi, I'm good. Today, again, is not the day that I'm going to use video. (laughs) So for the sake of the listeners, then, I should just say that, Noah, you and I are on a video chat right now, so we can see inside each other's homemade studios. But Amy, for the third week in a row, you've decided to go audio only, so you can see us, but we can't see you. Not only am I, like, looking like a mess but my house is also a little a little messy you know (laughs) next it's all about next time maybe that's why we're really in these booths just to hide our messy houses (laughs) i mean i can't see the background of your house but yeah you do seem to live in some sort of comforter pillow situation (laughs) (laughs) so ben and i have just been tuned into a news conference by the uk's health secretary matt hancock Um, He himself is fresh out of quarantine because he previously tested positive for COVID-19. And in this conference, he's laid out the latest grand plan about how the UK is going to respond. In particular, he referenced testing a lot. He's come out today with really kind of, I think, his five pillars he mentioned about, you know, what we're going to do to try and uh, try and get testing, well, testing levels up. I think currently only a few thousand NHS frontline workers have been testing. I think he's talking about getting that up to, what, was it 100,000 Noah, by the end of the month, something like that? 100,000 is, is, is the goal. Um, exactly how they're distributed is a question that we are exactly not sure the answer to yet. But there is a whole, as you say, five pillar strategy for it. You know, in the US, we have a situation now where there is all of these promises. It's been going on for weeks now about how we're going to really have, you know, 100,000 tests come on board. And there's all sorts of numbers flying around. Um, But in reality, when you talk to doctors, they'll tell you people are waiting five plus days to get results returned. And then people who do feel really sick will say they haven't been able to get tested. So it's clear that those 
although they may be on the way, have not arrived yet. And I guess my question is, well, you know, are you having the same situation in the UK? The sort of numbers and what the government is saying and how that's translating into real life has been quite central to a lot of people's discussions in the UK recently. You know, at the end of last week, there was an announcement in a select committee that 3.5 million antibody tests had been ordered and they were going to be up and running within days. And then that rolled back quickly to, oh, hang on, we just need to test them first and make sure they actually work. And then no one's heard anything about them for a little while. And there's this number that's been floating around saying 25,000 tests per day by the middle of April is what people are on track for. And then we've actually seen maybe 8,000 or 10,000 tests per day. And the government's not really been responding very much up until this briefing to all of the questions that people have been asking, saying, well, where are these tests? Where are these tests? You say they're coming and we don't see it seemingly coming. And we haven't really had much of an answer on that until this briefing, which is now claiming 100,000 tests is what the aim is. And there's this strategy to get to that, which includes trying to um, launch a whole new diagnostic industry is how Matt Hancock put it. So to uh, enlist um, the likes of AstraZeneca and GSK to work with some smaller diagnostics labs to try to launch a whole new industry to develop diagnostic tests. Exactly how that plays out, I guess, is the next thing that we need to find out. Mm, and and of course, there are sort of two different sorts of tests. There's the uh, the have you currently got the virus test, which I think is super important for for patients and for for you know frontline healthcare workers. And then there's the have you had the virus test. But yeah, I think speed is of the essence, right? I mean, we've we've been learning about a company in Cambridge that have been trying to uh, develop a uh, well, maybe repurpose a, a testing sort of machine they use for HIV to try and get down uh, tests to, was it 90 minutes, I think, rather than the 24 hours they claim is currently taking for that. So I think lots of different people are, are coming at this at lots of different angles. You know, the issue with tests, there's like a few things at play. So one is like the most basic sort of thing that doesn't need to be produced by, you know, a specific company per se is based on PCR. Like, And that, you know, really only takes about two hours but the deal is, is that you have to get the right kind of sample from a person, like in the back of their way back of their nasal cavity. You have to get the right sample. Um, you have to prep that sample and you load it into a thermocycler, but you might want to batch it together with other samples because those reagents are expensive. Um, so you wait for, you know, let's say 96 or something like that. And that takes time. So that's why a turnaround might be 24 hours, but then it's even longer when there's this huge backup. So just to be clear, like it's not that that test itself needs to be super slow, but it's a matter of what's the throughput for it. And then there's kind of these rapid diagnostic kits. And those are usually based on either looking for antibodies or they're looking for antigens, which is kind of the part of the virus that triggers an immune response. And those kits are a lot faster um, and they're also, they don't require as much equipment, like they don't require the kind of equipment you need to do these uh, PCR-based tests. The issues are kind of around accuracy. Right now, we really don't know that much about the accuracy. One problem that we're really seeing, definitely in the UK and the US, is maybe we're not used to responding to outbreaks. And now I've reported from a number of outbreaks, and I'll tell you, people will say things like, perfect is the enemy of good. And the fact is, this is a huge race. I mean, with the pace that this outbreak is going, there's really not as much time to really go through the careful processes that we might always do. Now, you don't want to do something completely sloppy, but there's a point at which you say, hey, listen, this is something that we have now versus nothing. 
That is a discussion that's been happening quite a lot here, especially with relation to the antibody tests that need to be tested and so on. And there's a line that's being repeated often, which is that a bad test is worse than no test. And it's not been completely clear exactly where that line is. Is that a 5% false positive rate? Is that a 10% false positive rate? What does that mean? And those numbers don't seem to be very clearly coming out. What is a bad test? Yeah, it is. And that's a it's a good question. One other thing that people in the UK have been discussing quite a lot is why we are in the situation that we're in. So one thing that Matt Hancock in his press briefing today talked about was the challenges that the UK has been facing. And so he cited, for example, the difficulty with getting reagents, you know, these reagents that are needed. Um, There are some very specific reagents and the whole world is trying to get hold of those right now. And that's something that I feel like is a a kind of an ongoing global supply problem, which you're going to hear cited in lots of countries around the world. Yeah, for sure. And something I heard from researchers in Peru is that if the US and Europe are pulling on these supplies, you can only imagine how these other countries are going to feel. You know, and, it, and it's not stupid, by the way, and it's not cruel that the US and Europe is pulling on them because we have huge outbreaks. I'm, you know, in touch with various researchers here in the US, and I know there's whole groups that are people who, molecular biologists, who are also trying to work out, okay, what are workarounds? This reagent is gone. Can we use this reagent or this kit to extract RNA? Is it available? What are some other ways to do this? And like you said, there might be some cost to that. Maybe it's not the ideal way, but if it's a way that's on hand, can we use it? Quite commonly, I'm hearing government ministers in the UK regularly refer to science. They're saying we want to get the best minds and the best science on this. There was a call for the life sciences industry to come together to help. And there was a a suggestion that the government at all stages has been following the very best of what science has to offer and what science is suggesting. But, you know, there's a lot of scientists that don't necessarily think that countries like the UK really have been doing that and really have been following the scientists' advice. And I wonder whether or not, Amy, you might have been seeing in the US if there is a frustration with scientists and, uh, you know, the fact that science is being mentioned so much and lauded so much by those in power, even though perhaps they aren't really being listened to. I mean, I would hope, I feel like I would hope that a lot of people who might not have understood how much we need science and how much we need to fund the sciences are now understanding that. Um, I'm not super optimistic because I still feel like there's a big part of the American population that does not respect scientific experts. And it sort of boggles my own mind because we have examples of where it works and how it works and people have told us how to do it, but they don't really want to. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, the other thing that's been happening in the, in the UK that's got a lot of coverage as well over these past few sort of, uh, sort of days, I suppose, is, is this uh, this app that's been doing the rounds from King's College London. And I, I think we've talked a lot about uh, it's not just about testing as well. It's all the stuff that goes around it as well. And, and this has been uh, this has been done by what, 1.5 million users thus far. And I think it's uh, it's asking people to log their symptoms of, you know, whether they think they might have had COVID-19 and, you know, it has a list of what those things are. And now the results haven't actually been properly published yet you know, or, or you know or peer-reviewed but a lot of interesting stuff has come out of that right now yeah have you have you heard anything about this amy this app that is coming out of king's college london no you know okay so i have two thoughts though i ha- so first of all i don't know anything about it <laughs> but <laughs> my quick thought is one okay great i do think there's a role for technology in this outbreak especially when it comes to things like contact tracing uh, this is not that of course But I have to say, if it is something that is kind of collecting data on clinical symptoms that people feel, headache, fever, you know, 
we were just talking about how accurate are these rapid diagnostic tests. Well, I'll tell you, they're probably a whole lot more accurate than that is. So I, I sat in a press briefing from some of the researchers on this app, and they did acknowledge the, the dangers of self-reporting. Um, but they were hoping that because of the sheer scale of data they're managing to gather on a daily basis, that they can start to try to work through those kinks. Um, and one particularly interesting thing that they were talking about was the, the group of people through their app that have been reporting their symptoms, but have also been tested positive for the virus. So those are people then that they can try to look at how those self-reported symptoms link with that. And one thing that was particularly interesting that came out of there was a symptom that they call anosmia. So this symptom where you lose your sense of taste and smell. Um, and they found that to be much more common than perhaps they'd expected, to the point now that they're, you know, they're doing a lot of data crunching, they're trying to work out the significance of this um, and look at the potential errors involved with this. But perhaps this could be a new symptom that the NHS in the UK currently isn't looking for, but maybe might be helpful to help diagnose COVID-19, because it seems to be quite specific to COVID-19, this anosmia symptom. Yeah, I've heard that. That's great. We've talked a lot about the UK there, Amy, but... Uh... Last week, you mentioned you were going to be sort of spreading your your net quite globally and seeing what's going on around the world. Um, what, what have you What have you found? What's been going on in different places? You know, I've been watching the U.S., which this week has almost two hundred and thirty thousand cases. You know, Florida still, I think, is around eight thousand cases and has just decided, well, they'll cancel a lot of gatherings, but churches can still meet, things like that. So I'm watching my own country kind of just not do the basics of epidemic control, I decided to kind of look abroad and see what's going on. So I really focused on, uh, let's call them low resource countries. These are low and middle income countries that have like, you know, they can count the number of intensive care units they have on one hand. So countries that have very poor hospital systems and realize that when coronavirus starts to spike there, it's going to be really bad because patients will not be able to get treatment. Also, they also have very few health workers per population. So if their nurses or doctors suddenly get sick or die from COVID-19, now they're even more short-staffed and that has all sorts of terrible knock-on effects for people that need care for other diseases. So it's a very grim and scary uh, future that they're looking at. So I looked at specifically El Salvador, Peru, Kenya, and Nigeria. I know it's a kind of random grouping, but these were countries where I was talking to people and what they were doing sort of stuck out to me. Yeah, perhaps as sort of a, an esoteric mix of countries. But the story that you've written, it really covers a ton of ground. I'd recommend people go and read it. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, when I first read it, I was particularly grabbed by the story in Nigeria. They, they really got on this very fast there. Yeah, back in January... The Nigeria CDC started seeing this go up in China, and the head of the NCDC I've actually profiled before for Nature, Chikwe Ihekweazu, saw that this could be a big problem. Uh, he's also kind of works closely with the World Health Organization. So in January, he sort of started asking about testing. He actually even went on a delegation to Wuhan and other cities in China to see what they were doing. And he was sending words to his people to say, you know, let's let's get ready for this thing. So on February 3rd, Nigeria got the PCR-based diagnostic kit that the WHO was recommending. This was created by researchers in Germany. So by February 3rd, they had it. They had the positive controls and they tested it. They were ready to go. Right when Chikwe had returned from China, they confirmed their first case. You know, immediately they were ready to go. They diagnosed it very quickly. They sent a sample to a lab 
Um, another lab I visited in Nigeria where they sequenced it. I think this all happened within three days, and it was the first full genome of the coronavirus uploaded from Africa. So they were kind of on it real fast. But of course, the problem starts kicking in when you start saying, okay, how are you going to lock down? You know, Lagos alone is a city of 21 million. About two thirds of the population live in informal settlements without electricity or running water. You know, they're below the poverty line. So when they go to the market and sell things, this is food for the day. So in that situation, I mean, you can't just say everybody stay home because, you know, it's dark and people have to leave to go to the bathroom. Or if they have, you know, I was talking with one woman who said, hey, if I have like, you know, some buckets of water from a well, I'm going to use them to cook dinner, not to sit and wash my hands. So these are real constraints to having things like lockdowns. Nonetheless, you know, Nigeria's quickly shut their borders and they've sort of locked down Lagos and Abuja and um, another province. And they're trying to kind of limit travel, but this is going to be very, very hard. And, and the economic downfall is massive. I mean, we complain about it in the US and Europe, but quite frankly, I mean, this is people's ability to eat. So that's sort of what they're grappling with there. And at the same time, cases have been rising. I think they're just around 100 now, maybe a little bit more since I haven't looked since yesterday and this stuff moves up so fast, but they're backlogged um, on their testing. And you saw some countries which were taking pretty extreme measures sort of really early on, uh, maybe before they even saw any cases like in Peru, for example. Yeah, isn't that incredible? So I'd say like Peru and El Salvador move super fast. Um, I think Colombia moved pretty fast too. El Salvador even started taking actions before they had a single confirmed case. They said they don't want intern, you know, people coming from outbreak countries before they had any cases. And they also started banning large gatherings. They then decided to say that people can only leave their house for absolutely essential reasons. Um, in addition, there's a curfew of, I think they started at 8 p.m. It might be earlier now. And not only did they say this, but they also have been enforcing it, arresting people who break that quarantine. The government's even kind of posted on their website the number of people who are detained every day. And kind of another little interesting tidbit there is there's parts of El Salvador that are controlled by gangs rather than the government. And a number of large gangs have also said that they will be beating or fining anyone who breaks the lockdown. And unfortunately, you know, I've in reporting this story, I saw a lot of like videos shared on WhatsApp. So a video he shared with me was of a gang hitting someone behind the knees with a bat who broke quarantine. It seems completely crazy here. And I'm not saying it's not crazy. That said, the whole country has a hundred uh, intensive care units, beds in intensive care units, and a lot, most of those are in private hospitals. This is what I heard from Doctors Without Borders. So you can kind of see where the thought stems from. It puts things in a whole new perspective. There's someone sitting here in the UK, and there's people that are still not abiding by the social distancing measures that are put into place. Just how, I suppose, extreme this has been in countries that are even less able to manage this than places like the US and the UK. You know, this social distancing is so central to them. Yeah, you know, in Peru, they're also arresting people. And I think I saw one number where the president said that he had so far arrested 20, 000, more than 20,000 people. And I should say what they do there is they give somebody a kind of fine and something goes on their record. So it's not like they're being housed in a jail somewhere, which could be really dangerous. But the people I spoke with in Peru, and of course, that's not everyone, seem like a lot of them were sort of on board 
with this. They don't have this kind of sense of security that, oh, well, you know, if something happens, there's always the hospital. Um, one of the researchers I spoke with said something like, you know, here in Peru, we put the health of the population above companies, things like that. So they might have sort of a sentiment that this is what's truly necessary to stop it before it gets really bad. Peru also started building these big isolation centers even before they had any cases. Again, though, they're having this issue with trying to scale up tests. And something interesting in Peru was I talked to partners in health and they've been working in Peru for a long time. And they're working really closely with the government on their response. Partners in Health is a philanthropic organization that works on healthcare issues. And what they're doing with the government is they've actually ordered, already they've said that 30,000 of these rapid diagnostic tests that we talked about in the beginning, they've ordered, those have already arrived and they say they want to reach a million of those. And kind of, they're not exactly sure how to use them yet. The one thought is, yeah, it's not perfect, but in many parts of the country outside of the capital city of Lima, where they don't have PCR, how can they use these rapidly? You know, there's a debate to be had about accuracy, but at the time they were kind of leaning more on the side of saying, we really need to just ramp up testing right now. One thing that is also important to maybe mention is contact tracing. So trying to trace these cases when they exist. The difficulty with contact tracing, though, is that it can be quite labor intensive to do that. Are countries that are already low resourced, do they have the kind of um, capability that you might need to be able to contact trace as well as test as well as all the other challenges they're facing? Well, you know, ironically, one thing this pandemic has taught me is that some of my expectations are wrong, like contact tracing is very labor intensive, but it's not like it requires really fancy technology. You know, it's, it's not as resource intensive as, say, you know, ordering reagents and ventilators and things like that. So yes, contact tracing is always very hard. But, you know, I've seen contact tracing in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. What some of these countries might be actually very good at is moving quickly and being really flexible, knowing how to scale up workers really fast and let people do specific jobs. That's kind of a human management sort of issue. You know, the countries I wrote about here actually don't have massive outbreaks and they are trying to do contact tracing. I shouldn't brag about them too much. I was talking with the head of the Nigeria CDC, Dr. Chikwe, and when I was like, well, are you going to do kind of what Singapore did and get people's like all of where they've been in two hours and contact all of those people and let everyone know them, you know, know where they've been because Singapore did an incredible job with this. And he just sort of laughed and he was like, we're not Singapore. <laughs> like it's, none of us are Singapore. <laughs> yeah. So it, it may not be to that level. But I don't know that we aren't inherently any better or worse at contact tracing just because we have wealth here in the U.S. And in fact, um, Partners in Health, I think, might start helping Massachusetts with contact tracing, Massachusetts in the U.S., um, because clearly we're sort of massively failing in that department. You mentioned some of the resource poor countries you looked at. I mean, you know, fairly robust in trying to get ahead of this outbreak. Do you get a sense of, of what might happen if these mechanisms don't work as planned? What, what sort of scale might we be talking for, for outbreaks in some of these countries? You know, I actually wrote some of the epidemiologists that are doing a lot of great modeling work out of Harvard when I was doing this to ask that question, what can be the projected number of deaths, things like that. And the truth is, it's really hard to say. I think anyone that's looking at this is just terrified because like I said, it's it's not only numbers of death from the coronavirus, but also all the knock-on effects about what happens to the health system. 
So I think it's fair to say it's probably going to be pretty bad if it gets out of hand. But it's hard to give a number because we don't know how it plays out. So like one of the unknowns is this, like in a lot of sub-Saharan African countries, life expectancy, you know, is between 50 and 60 and the population skews young. So there's a lot of younger people. So on one hand, you know, maybe that will mean that there's not so much, you know, intensive care needed in death from this virus. So that could be great. But what we don't know is there's also tons of malnutrition. There's huge rates of malaria. There's high rates of HIV in a lot of countries. There's a lot of chronic diseases like diabetes and high blood pressure that are not treated or not even diagnosed. So we don't know how do those comorbidities influence the coronavirus. And if there's treatments people are giving, you know, like some, some of the treatments being tested are antiretrovirals. Well, how do those interact with the drugs that people are already on? So there's a lot of kind of open questions. So that's why it's hard to put a number on it. Yeah, even in the UK, I think people are struggling to put numbers on a lot of these things about what is a death caused by coronavirus versus a death caused by an underlying condition with coronavirus. These interactions between conditions and coronavirus are still so poorly understood. Yeah, I would think that seems like such an an important area of study, just even clinical care for people with underlying conditions and for the elderly. I mean, just to look at them as a separate group and say, you know, what happens to them when they're infected and, and can we prevent some of those deaths? You mentioned, Amy, um, what might happen in healthcare scenarios in you know countries, low-income countries around the world. And again, I think it's interesting to to come back to to what we've seen so far in the sort of epicenters of these outbreaks, which at the moment is Europe and the US. And even right now, hospitals are starting to be overwhelmed. We talked about New York last week, and and this week in the UK, Ben, you've been talking to someone in the UK who is a clinician researcher. Um, about what life in a hospital is like at the moment. Yeah, that's right. I spoke to uh, I spoke to Jess. She's a she's a lung specialist. Uh, she works in a London hospital, and uh, we had a good chat about uh, what's going on and uh, and what it's like being a, a research academic. Actually, let me play you a little bit of what she said. Here's a, just a little uh, little cut down version. There is a general air of anxiety everywhere. You can feel it. There is an edge of adrenaline and a bitter taste at the back of your throat all of the time putting on and taking off the personal protective equipment is exhausting. The nurses are absolute heroes. They are in their kit for three, four, five hours at a time. They are having to manage increasing numbers of patients in intensive care. Usually you have one-to-one nursing to patient ratio, and that is going to have to change, and care is going to be compromised as a result. But there is no other choice. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that is quite a clip. I, I have to say my heart goes out so much for healthcare workers in times like this. It does seem like things are very, very difficult at the moment in hospitals around the world. Part of what makes me upset is that, you know, for the lack of action that countries take, it's like we're putting it on our healthcare workers, the people who are giving so much to help. And I saw this clip that somebody sent me, another WhatsApp video from Peru, and it was in an area of Lima that's pretty dense. So it was just picture, it's all dark and there's like all these apartment buildings. And at 8 p.m. when curfew starts, everyone goes to their balcony or their window and just starts shouting and cheering for the healthcare workers because they also realize like what kind of bravery that takes. I know friends of mine who live in Barcelona, they're out every night as well, banging on their pots and pans as well. And, uh, and certainly people in Italy are doing the same thing, right? Just to try and, try and give back in some way to, to the people who are caring for them. 
It's a really marvelous response, but of course we have to remember that you know showing that gratitude is really important to show that they're really valued. But then, of course, the other thing that's really important that governments need to think about is we should be doing all we can to support them. And part of that is try to follow those guidelines, try to listen to what the researchers are saying about the best way to protect people and protect healthcare systems. Yeah. Well, then, both loads to chew over there, but um, maybe on a lighter note, what one thing has stood out to you this week uh, that's been going on in the world? Do you want me to tell you my favorite thing I've heard? Please do. Well, this sounds a little bit silly, but one thing I enjoyed about reporting my story from various countries was like seeing all of these videos from around the world that people are sharing on social media. But my own personal PSA that I saw last night that I just loved is Samuel L. Jackson reads his uh, reads a new poem that's called Stay the F*** at Home. And it is incredible. <laughs> I highly recommend <laughs> Oh, I really want to look it up. I'm going to be looking it up as soon as I get off this podcast. I've sent it to, you know, like all of my relatives, like my, you know, favorite elderly aunt in New York who keeps asking like, oh, but can I just go to this restaurant? So <laughs> I've sent that to her to answer her question. Stay the f*** at home. I have um, I have two favorite stories recently. Um, one is, you know, in response to the slightly worrying lack of PPE here in the UK, there is a medical fetish company that has donated its entire stock to the NHS because they decided they needed it more than, <laughs> the, than its usual clientele, which I thought was a brilliant story. And the other one is uh, some friends of mine, uh, or friends of friends, really. They are a family that was stuck at home. They got rather bored and they're quite musical. So they rewrote a song from Les Miserables and recorded it. And it's all over the TV now, which is great. They've become sort of internet famous singing songs about what do they do when they can't wash their underwear. I'd recommend people look it up. Go on then, I'll, I'll give you one as well. Um, Patrick Stewart is uh, is reading Shakespeare's sonnets one a day. And it's uh, it's one minute 20 of just calm of a morning for me and it, and it really sets me up for the rest of the day will you share that do you know what i'll put some links in the show notes there everyone oh good thanks well let's meet up again next week amy and noah and we'll continue to to cover the outbreak but for the time being thank you both so much for joining me once again thanks ben thank you stay safe stay the f- at home <laughs> <laughs> we'll hear more from noah and amy next week up next, reporter Julie Gould has been hearing about some of the difficult decisions that research groups have had to make in the wake of the COVID-19 lockdown. Around the world, research groups have had to change their way of working as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Whether this means spending more time on data analysis and working remotely, or switching things up in the lab to help battle the virus. But working with animals presents some additional challenges, and some researchers have had to come up with unusual solutions. One such researcher is Claudio Alonso, a professor of developmental neurobiology at the University of Sussex in the UK. He studies the influence of the genetic program on the formation and function of the nervous system, and his lab uses the fruit fly model system to study this. The flies are normally housed in his laboratory in carefully controlled environments, but Claudio had to close his lab. And when I spoke to him over the phone, he told me that looking after the flies is proving to be quite challenging in unpredictable ways. In terms of the actual plan on how to deal with this, what we had to do, and you may find this um, potentially funny, uh, is we, we had to buy a whole range of fridges for the lab. So each, each member of the lab was now given a fridge in order to keep fly food for as long as possible. And we're going to distribute all our critical stocks 
among lab members so that we can keep all these dogs at home for while the lockdown is applied. So we would be doing effectively basic prosophila genetics and culture in our own homes. So you'll be babysitting the flies in your homes. How do you how do you your family feel about that? And they're not very happy. I had to make the case and explain the whole situation. <laughs> so I hope that I will have some sympathy in the coming weeks and months when 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 I had to actually do some fly work on on in in our, in, in our kitchen. But um, anyway, I promise to clean up. So how many flies do you currently have in your home? I haven't collected the flies yet. We're going to do this later this week, but we're going to be dealing in uh, probably in the, in the region of 400 or so different strains of flies in, in my house and, and, and an equivalent number in, in the house uh, of mo- most of my group members. Yeah. What do you store flies in? Like, Where, where are you going to put them? I cannot imagine you're going to keep them in your kitchen next to where you're doing all your cooking. Well, they are quite um, tidy animals and they're very small. So the adult fly is only three, four millimeters long. So we can keep quite a number of them in a very small little, as we call them, vials with a small amount of food. So the food is a mix of sugars and gelatin and yeast and apple juice and so on. So it's nothing particularly disgusting for, for a kitchen environment. It's not the standard practice, I must say, and we shouldn't be doing this in general because it will change the conditions of potential experiments in the future. But uh, but it's better to at least keep the stalks going and hope that the flies will survive. And hopefully when all of this is in the past, we will stabilize the stalk, then restarting experiments once we are satisfied that the stalks are, are where they should be. So how much of a setback is this lockdown for your research and how long will it take to get going again? The impact is going to be somewhere around six months to a year in terms of current projects, which is, which is pretty terrible. Of course, not all scientists are able to take their animals home and many difficult decisions are having to be made to safeguard the welfare of research animals. Andy works at a teaching university in the UK and he and his team look after many of the different sorts of animals used in the life sciences research there. Following the enforced lockdown caused by COVID-19, many of the animals had to be euthanised. I spoke to Andy over the phone to find out about the situation post-lockdown. He said the snail and zebrafish colonies that he and his team in the facility look after remain intact, but sadly this wasn't the case for the mice colonies that we reduced by about 100, I euthanized those animals with one of my members of the staff. And yeah, it, you didn't, it wasn't great because, you know, culling animals for a couple of hours, it, it's really not, not nice. Well, I don't, I sort of give me goosebumps, really, if you've had to do that yourself for, for a few hours. Euthanizing animals is emotional, but yeah, it did. Yeah, it wasn't a great three hours or whatever. If you don't mind me asking, what sort of emotions do you go through, you know, across that three-hour period? Oh, well, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, the thing is, we've obviously cared for those animals. It is upsetting. It is very difficult to describe. <clears throat> There was the announcement over the weekend that this lockdown could potentially go on for six months. So 
what does that mean for your facility? Does that mean that you will just continue to go in and follow those social distancing rules for six months or, or will it have more of an impact on the animals that you have in ways that I guess you might not be able to predict yet? We will still endeavour to go in. We have some researchers who we could call upon. In terms of the mice, through the decisions that we've made, we have reduced the colonies down to, if you like, the bare minimum. But we will have to really look, because, of course, the mice are going to get older. So we'll have to look at how we bring through the next offspring to then replace breeders and be able to keep the lines intact. We have discussed freezing down the sperm um, because then we could potentially regenerate the line uh, if we need to. Um, and I think that's something that if we are looking at, you know, something like six months, we may well have to look at doing that. And I have to be aware that for my staff, continuing to, to work through that period of time, the extra stress on them, because we've, you know, we've all got, we've got work, haven't we? And then we've got family and, and all those other things that are going on in our lives. You can read more about how research groups around the world that use lab animals are coping in a news article over at nature.com slash news. Indeed, you'll find all of our coronavirus coverage there. That's it for this edition of Coronapod. Don't forget, if you're looking for some non-corona-based science, we're still putting out the regular Nature podcast each Wednesday. And look out for that wherever you get your shows. Until next week, I've been Benjamin Thompson. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.